In this week's show, we have a special uh, presentation. We have the attorney for Vanessa Guillen, um, a victim of, um, I don't know if you would call it um, domestic violence, but it is a violence against women at mm -hmm. Fort Hood, uh, which is uh, near the location where we're recording the show at this time. Her name is Natalie Kuwam. Um, she will tell us more about her work in uh, providing support to the family, uh, investigating the case, as well as other um, endeavors that she's doing to support people in the military. Well, first of all, welcome to the show. How you been? Busy, trying to get next, next stages of the Guillen done and looking at other issues in the military that need help. That's wonderful. Um, Thank you. And tell us about your background and what brought you uh, to this case um, since it's brought a lot of notoriety to the problems at Fort Hood. Sure. Um, just to give you background, uh, I'm an immigrant. My parents are immigrants. And, uh, you know, one of those uh, cases or, you know, stories of working really hard when we came to the U.S., always uh, focused on doing our best and giving back to the community. Um, I went through college. I got my MBA. I did my post-bac in medicine because I wanted to be a doctor. I did my MBA. I did my second master's in finance. And then I did my law degree at Georgetown. Uh, you know, always was top of my class and played all sports and um, varsity in sports. You know, I was always just really hardworking. And when I, when I, after I completed law school, I was, I worked in the um, government, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, General Counsel's Office. Uh, uh, for, so basically I learned Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, by the way, just to let you know, I worked my whole time through college, full-time in college, full-time in master's, full-time in law school. So I would go to school, work full-time and go to school, do my double master's at night. So never really, um, partied as one would normally do in their lifetime. But I always felt it was important to, you know, do the American dream, uh, be successful. So, um, and I'm Lebanese Catholic, by the way. So um, when I was, I wanted to go to medical school, but then I started thinking maybe I want to be the first female CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So my mentor was the CEO of the hospital. And he said to me, don't go to medical school, go to law school. You don't need clinical skills. And I didn't want to be a lawyer. I don't like lawyers. They argue too much. So uh, he said, listen, you can go to law school and teach you how to negotiate contracts and such. I did that, and uh, I really did enjoy and loved law school. So when I went into government, I learned a lot about healthcare. Uh, so I was a healthcare lawyer, uh, about reimbursement, about whistleblowing, Medicare, Medicaid fraud. Uh, and I took that information and that knowledge, and I started uh, working in private practice uh, as a whistleblower attorney, meaning Medicare, Medicaid fraud. I was very successful. Um, first few cases settled at several hundred million dollars. I mean, very good at what I do. Hardworking. Um, and uh, after a while when I was just doing really well with the cases and pursuing these cases, I started thinking about how my, um, my interest to do pro bono work. And a lot of people who put their time in pro bono work, uh, they do, um, you know, criminals, criminal rights, and so on and so forth. I felt like there was a need, a desire, especially as an immigrant, to represent people in the military, people serving our country. Um, 
And I saw, you know, this need because I noticed a lot of veterans would ask me to help them with issues. Um, and, you know, they don't have the wealth or the money or the free legal um, um, availability to them. They tend to have to represent themselves. You see a lot of these veterans looking for their rights and their benefits being denied. And, you know, the saying, deny, deny, and deny until you die. So it's sort of making me think, you know, maybe I want to just start working on veterans issues and military issues pro bono for free. Um, and so, you know, and a lot of people said, well, why, you know, that's not really a big market. That's not really, um, you know, there's not really a big market for doing veterans issues and military stuff. And I said, you know what, that's the issue. Why do we all have to conform and do what's sexy and cool? Why don't we do something new or different where we really are needed? Uh, and if it's not sexy, we'll make it sexy. We'll, we'll make it cool to represent military and veterans. You know, how cool is it to represent someone who served our country? So I took the initiative and started really working on veterans issues. Worked on a, um, a, a Sergeant Gunnery. He was suicidal. He hit, got hit to three AD, IEDs. Um, his appeal kept on being denied. He came to me. It was a Friday night. I was in my office. And they said, there's no one else that we can trust but you to work on this matter. Well, it was a hard matter. And I did it pro bono. I didn't realize it was going to take so long. But we won. And, you know, even the uh, front office of the Department of Defense said, yeah, we've never seen anyone um, win this kind of issue. So, I, you know, I wasn't trying to... Um, I wasn't trying to do anything but help this guy. But what I did was I started um, making that issue, that, that matter, more, more known. Like this is, a lot of people get denied on their rights and their service rights. Like, so his benefits, he was supposed to be 100% disabled by the, he was rated 100% disabled by the, vet, by the VA, but not by the DOD. They gave him 20% rating. You know, that doesn't allow him to be able to cover his mortgage and all so on and so forth. It makes him go bankrupt. So anyway, I thought that that was an unfair thing. I think it was retaliation, quite honestly, with what they did. So long story short, we won. Um, then I got um, a phone call, an email from a, another mother of a, of a um, Marine sniper turned Green Beret. And she said, my son is dying of stage four cancer. No one will help him. Can you help him? And I was like, what? This was very upsetting for me because it was in the middle of the night. I got this email and I work around the clock. So I thought, what's going on here? Let me talk to this family immediately in the morning. And of course, I got into the case. Um, and that was one of my first bills that I got passed. And it was called the Sergeant First Class Richard State School Military Medical Accountability Act, which means that our military forever has not been able to sue for medical malpractice. If they are um, if they're active duty and they're serving and they get malpractice by a DOD hospital. I don't care if it's a, um, a dentist or, you know, uh, any kind of um, uh, routine visit care. Guy was 35 years old with two daughters under 10. Um, he went into um, to his doctor in 2017, January 2017, um, and it was, a, it was an annual review of his lungs and such, and he had to do it because he was going to diving school because he's special forces. So they had to check his lungs, of course, for diving. Uh, and they said everything was fine. You're good to go. They even they even signed off on his diving uh, thing. Four months later, he's coughing up blood. He's saying something's wrong, uh, and he goes and gets checked again. And they said you're fine. You have walking pneumonia. Now, in that January visit, there was a mass, a small mass on his lung. You could see it. It was visible. They circled it. They just never told him. They said he was fine. They could have removed that mass for four thousand dollars. It was easy surgery. My brother-in-law is a cancer surgeon. He could have easily removed it, and it would have been fine. But they did. They told him he was fine and let him go. 
four months later, of course, it metastasized to his chest, you know, down to his kidneys, everything. So, you know, he was dead man walking, basically. They didn't tell him. They told him he has walking pneumonia. So six months later, he goes to Duke Hospital because he can't get seen, and he lights up like a Christmas tree. And they said, you have stage four cancer. Um, it was very upsetting. When he went to the commander of the hospital and said, how did you do this? Why wouldn't you tell me? You know, how can somebody just tell me I'm fine? They said, shit happens. Literally. Like, what are you talking about? This is someone's life. This is someone's father. This is someone's son. This is someone's husband. So when I heard this story, I was like, first of all, it broke my heart. And secondly, I said, enough is enough. I don't know why we treat our military and our veterans like second-class citizens. It's unacceptable. So when I read more and more about it, they tried to say, oh, it was the Ferris Doctrine, which is a law from 1915 Supreme Court. The Ferris Doctrine bars you or stops anyone from being in the military to sue the government because they say you are anticipating um, losing your life and stuff when you go to war. Yeah, you anticipate losing your life when you go to war, not when you go to an annual visit at you know, your base uh, medical center. You're, so the first doctrine, just to give you background, is about a law from 1950, um, a case, sorry, from 1950 in the Supreme Court that said basically this guy who was gone through surgery and was like in war, um, basically when a doctor and you're in war in battle, think of it, and uh, you get shot and the medic is there and he's trying to, you know, save your leg, but instead he loses your leg because he doesn't have all the, um, all the tools and all the blood and all the, everything he needs. Of course you can't sue him in the middle of war it's a battle zone this is not a battle zone it was fort bragg in north carolina there was no war in north carolina this was a regular doctor seeing him messing up so when i heard this i was like no no no, no. they're misinterpreting the ferris doctrine and that's a deliberate misinterpretation because everyone knows the ferris doctrine does not belong in the u.s soil there's no war going on so they're they're easily just applying this to any time someone gets medical malpractice. So it went through the Supreme Court several times. The Supreme Court kept on saying, uh, no, I'm sorry, but this is the job of Congress to interpret this or, or make this a law that says it's not uh, during wartime. We agree, but this is Congress's job, hands off. Scalia agreed with this. Uh, Justice uh, uh, Ginsburg agreed with this. I mean, you never do you see Supreme Court, both sides agreeing on the same issue. So when they, but they kept on saying this is Congress's job. Every time someone went to Congress, they couldn't get it passed. Um, so everyone told me not to do this case. You're going to waste your time. You're going to lose your shirt. You're going to go bankrupt, blah, blah, blah. So when they tell me that, I said, why? Why would I? Why won't anyone do this? Well, you're going to go against the Department of Defense. This is a big animal. You can't fight the, you know, whatever. The law is against you. The, the, the resources are against you. The, and I said, you know what? If this was my son or my father or my brother, I would want someone fighting for this. So I, I continued my track and I said, I don't care. I'm not giving up. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to strictly uh, stick to this case. I'm not doing any other cases, but this one, I'm going to get this law passed. And I was right. Thank God we got the law passed in 2019. The president signed it into law. Now our military has the right to sue for medical malpractice. First time in history in 72 years, our, our military has this right. They never had it before. So, and a lot of people in the military don't know that they have a right to sue for medical malpractice. They think, oh, no, you're not allowed to. There's a Ferris doctrine. So I want them all to know you do have this right now. Um, and, you know, they can always call me because, you know, that's what I do. I, I created a whole law firm called Kwam Ripka for the military, just for military medical 
medical malpractice cases. And what we do is we just, we focus just on these with experts, uh, with the military. So it's a little nuanced because it's a little confusing because there's so many different regs and stuff that apply to this. It's not a typical medical malpractice kind of um, uh, case because you're dealing with the DOD and everything. But we are so specialized and focused on this that that's why we have been so successful with what we've been doing with these, um, with these patients and, or as I say, these victims. So after that happened, a lot of people would call me about in the military about, hey, I have a sexual assault, sexual harassment issue. And I started really looking into sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. And I thought, God, this is terrible. Like, oh, and by the way, when I first drafted the Sergeant First Class Richard uh, State School Military Medical Accountability Act, one of the provisions I added in there was that you can also sue for negligence and sexual assault. Um, and they stripped that language out of the bill. So they only, only allowed for medical malpractice. I was mad, but I said, well, you know, thank God at least we got the medical malpractice because everyone told me that was never going to happen anyway. So when, um, when uh, Vanessa Gein's case came around, I thought, ugh, if we only had the sexual assault, sexual harassment, and that bill got passed, this would never have happened. I was very upset because I, and sorry, but I saw this happening. This is why I wanted it to be in the language of the state school bill. But anyway, when um, I represent a lot of military, military families around the country, actually around the world, because there's bases around the world, um, I also deal with mold, like you've probably heard of and know about. There's a lot of these bases that have these, um, these management companies that are managing the um, homes on base, these military homes on bases. And these families are getting sick from mold and substandard um, um, uh, construction. So a lot of these military families are getting sick. They're breathing in mold. They're breathing in toxins, um, asbestos, and all that stuff in these military-based housing. A lot of these uh, these uh, soldiers are being um, medically separated because of this. So we're losing soldiers and everything because of constructive defects from a private defendant, like these big homemakers and everything. Not the government, but these these gov these government contractors, these private def these these home. Um, property management companies that are making hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in contracts. They are supposed to be managing and taking care of our soldiers and their you know, families in these base housing. And in fact, they're pocketing the money and using substand substandard products and uh, not cleaning up the mold or uh, properly um, removing these families and putting them in proper housing. So unsafe housing. So I started doing these cases for our military uh, and their families. Well, come to be uh, when, when, uh, when uh, Vanessa's case came around. Uh, and by the way, there was two other bills that I worked on be between that and Vanessa's. So I'll just skip to Vanessa's case. Um, when Vanessa's case came around, somebody said, hey, look, did you see on TV what that girl missing? Did you see this? And you know, I identified with it. You know, the whole I am Vanessa Gein uh, act. I identified with the I am Vanessa Gein. She's pretty. She's cute. She's athletic. She's an immigrant. Her, her families are immigrants. Um, you know, she just wanted to do a, a bring up her life for her family uh, in America. So I was like, God, you know, that's so what's going on here? You know, I just was really disturbed by it. But as an attorney and under Florida bar rules, you cannot call um, a client. So a lot of people say, why aren't you calling this person, Natalie? Because I can't. That's called solicitation as an attorney. So I can't call them. They can call me. So. What happens, a lot of people say, why don't you go and call her and help them help this family? I said, I can't, the, the bar rules. So I guess a few of my clients 
who had, I had represented and, you know, they knew my work ethic called um, the family or contacted the family. I don't know how they, you know, exactly how it was done, but contacted the family. I guess uh, Myra looked into my background and Myra gave me a call and said, Hey, are you, um, a, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I told her, you know, my background and my skill set and legislation, understanding how to get legislation passed, how to fight the DOD and sexual assault in my history and studying a sexual assault in cases in the military. So she said, okay, how much you charge? And I said, nothing. I want to help you find Vanessa. You know, like this is who wants to pay money to help find their sister, or their daughter. Like, and she goes, wow, because this other attorney just came here and wanted $50,000 cash from us and then said it would cost 150000 I'm like, what? I mean, you're missing your sister and someone wants to charge you too? I, you know, I just think some, you know, that's probably why some lawyers get a bad name, by the way. Like, how ruthless. So I identified with, you know, I would, the last thing I want to think about is, I mean, of course, I'd pay all the money in the world to look for my sister, but that shouldn't be happening. We should know better. So I was like, no, I won't charge you. Actually, I want to help find your sister and like, what to fix this problem in the military with sexual harassment, sexual So she immediately said, oh, we want to, can we, can you represent us? I said, absolutely. And I immediately flew into Houston. It was my first time in Houston. And then we went to Fort Hood and I got to meet the family and understand the family and started trying to figure out where was Vanessa and what happened and such. And I started seeing the way that the base was um, really uh, arrogant towards the family, uh, the way they questioned things. Uh, you know, immediately did I, I contacted my sources, my uh, contacts with the senator's offices and the Congress's office. And I remember just kept on saying, the family, one thing was great about them is that, uh, especially Myra, was that they listened. Because I knew the, the games and the loopholes that the DOD would do. I knew the games and politics of Congress. So I was able to make sure no one fell into that quicksand of, oh, I'm waiting for this issue and never like really focusing on the bigger issue. So we were able to, you know, obviously, unfortunately we found Vanessa's remains uh, and we were able to go to Congress and ask for a congressional investigation. A lot, of, a lot of people did not want us having that congressional investigation. And of course they wouldn't because they knew the powers of Congress. I knew what powers of Congress has and that's why we needed that congressional investigation to understand what really happened. We were, our voices were heard. We were loud enough to be able to get the investigation of Fort Hood, get the IRC's, um, you know, recommendation to the DOD, uh, get, you know, obviously the act of Congress passed. Um, but the whole time, it really was 110% focus. You know, there wasn't a time or day. I didn't take any other cases. The only case I actually did take, and I told the family, I said, do you mind if I take this case for two reasons? And it was the Elder Fernandez case. I said, because I want to show that sexual harassment, sexual assault is not just a, a, a girl thing. It's a boy, girl. It's, it's not a gender issue. It happens to women and men. And number two, it was he reported it. He did a formal report. Because I remember one of the things everyone tried to use as an excuse was, oh, Vanessa never, Vanessa never did a, um, a formal investigation. That's why, you know, she, she um, you know, no one took her. No, no, no. The reason why she never did a formal investigation or a formal um, complaint was because she was worried about uh, being taunted, not being believed, being retaliated against. So when Elder did his formal report as supposed to be done, he got retaliated, uh, harassed, obviously committed suicide from the, from the uh, harassment and blackballing. So I took that case purposely. And by the way, when I took Elder's case, I didn't know he committed suicide yet. 
because we were still looking for elder. So it was like my antennas and intuition is pretty spot on when I do my cases and my work. Of course, I give 100% dedication to my cases and work. I do nothing else but my cases and work. I eat, sleep, and drink this. It's all I do. But I'm spot on with my intuition and what the next step was. They always said I play legal chess. I'm always playing chess in my head with what the next steps are, what they're going to say next. And I'm pretty usually, and I was ranked in chess. So I'm pretty good at knowing what my opposition, my opponent's going to do. Um, so with, with Elder, when we found that he was committed suicide, you know, unfortunately, I said I was going to stay in the case until we found Elder. But that was, you know, obviously, uh, he, he, he was found, but he was found dead. Um, so uh, that was when my representation of Elder finished. And then I stayed with the Vanessa Guillen case, obviously, because that, game, that was not about just finding Vanessa, but it was also about fixing the system at large making sure it never happens again and making sure that we get the legislation in my client's name. Cause that was my promise to the families. I want to make sure that at the end of the day, there is a bill named after your daughter and it never happens again. So we were able, we were very successful with our goals or my goals. And um, the family was very good with letting me do what I needed to do and complying with, if I tell Myra, we need to be in DC. Like we were, uh, I'll give you an example. We were doing a Netflix. Netflix is doing a documentary. We were doing an interview. It was supposed to be a seven-hour interview with Netflix at my house. During the interview, I get an f- email saying that Senator Reid will meet with us at 8 in the morning in D.C. I live in Florida. 8 in the morning in D.C. means I have to f- there's no flights that are going to get me in D.C. by 6 a.m. Uh, and the last flight, it was 7 p.m. Literally, like, put my pocketbook and literally a grab bag and I didn't even have time to pack and ran to the airport with Myra. The whole crew was left in my house without me. Uh, and I said, I'm sorry, this comes first. It's not about like the fame and everything. And the media is really important when getting a bill passed or getting a meeting with a, with a Senator. But guess what? The meeting with the Senator comes if, 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 if the media is working, the Senator gives me the meeting that that comes first. So we had to leave, literally leave everyone at my house and run to the airport. Thank God they were able to clean up and like take the next flight that like that next day. But either way, we got our meeting with Senator Reed. And that was a very important read because he got to meeting because he got to finally meet Myra Guillen and me and get to see um, what we're talking about, what we need and what we're asking for. And it's, I always say no, no meeting is as important as one in person. So you have to be available. You have to be ready at all times, uh, especially if you're going to get a meeting with the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. So our, our commitment was 100%. And I won't take a client or I won't do a case where that client is 100% invested like I am. Because I'm going to be 100% invested in any case I do. I'm not going to shortcut anything. I'm not going to be distracted. But I also need the same commitment from my client. And Myra was that person. So we were obviously very successful um, in getting this bill passed. Fast forward, the bill's passed now. Are we finished? Nope, we're not finished, unfortunately. Because one of the things we requested in this bill was that, um, now by the way, we moved mountains, we got the law changed. That is incredible. First time in history, our, um, our military can report out of the chain of command. How many people, when I told them my goal, was like, this was the law, this is the, this is the way, the crux of the military. This is how it's been forever since our country was born. This, our military is always like, what are you doing? You're changing something that's been from eternity from the start of our country. And 
it doesn't matter if it was, if it's 20, 20 years old or if it's 200 years old. If it's wrong, it's wrong. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it's failed, it's failed. And in my view, my opinion, the system has failed. So we need to change it, despite how hard it's going to be to change it. So what, um, what I also wanted to um, say that with, when you're changing a system, it's not easy. You're going to make a lot of opponents and a lot of opposition. So I had a lot of you know, um, older males that, are, um, that were former, firmly in the military, uh, definitely uh, officers, that just felt like I was trying to um, um, hurt or um, um, embarrass the military. But when, in fact, it was the opposite. I represent the military. My goal is to make sure that they are protected, that they are not being, um, how about this, if you're a male and you get accused of something, uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and that commander has a good relationship with the, your accuser, do you think it's fair that you get wrongly accused because of his bias? It goes both ways. Wouldn't you want a non-biased a completely neutral person to evaluate a case. So I have always tried to say, it's not about changing something because I think uh, I want to embarrass someone, but it's about improving it. I love the military. I love our, our soldiers and um, our country so much that I want to make sure that the system is fair, just like our judicial, judiciary system is. So that has been some of the um, conversations I think that we need to have out there uh, to understand just because you change something doesn't mean you hate it. It means you love it. You change things. Your children are growing. You want them to go to a better school. You don't want them to continue on the same path if they're not doing well. You want to see them do better. You get them tutors. You put them in a better school. Same here. If you love something, you, you, you uh, nurture it. You, you, you make sure it's doing what's best for itself so it doesn't get destroyed or self-implode. And here we had that issue, I felt, in the military. And now it's resolved. You know, the DOD agrees. Secretary Austin agrees. Uh, our co Congress agrees, our soldiers agree that this is what was needed and we got that done. Um, not to be pessimistic, but um, when you say uh, for this not to happen again, um, you know how uh, when they pass laws against uh, racial segregation and racial discrimination, uh, it didn't stop people from being racist, it just stopped, um, maybe they would think twice about getting more in trouble uh, how do you um, make it where it is less likely to happen as compared to completely stop since, um, you know, people who are, are violent against women, um, just like the, the culprit in this case, um, are still going to move forward even if there's laws against them? So, you know, I think that it's impossible, and I say that in very honest words, impossible to stop anything from happening. It's, it's impossible to stop an earthquake from happening. It's impossible to stop a murder from happening. We have murder laws. You know, it's impossible to stop anything from happening. You know, just because you put a law out there doesn't mean that no one's going to murder or rob anyone. Um, but, what it's, but what the system is, what the difference is between punishment and changing the system is that what this is an extra level of safeguards. What we're providing is... Um, an outlet for the victims, the soldiers, to, to report. So we're not just, this is not just a, a system of being, making things punitive, which is they made sexual harassment criminal, but rather it's also a system to prevent the, even though sexual harassment may happen and they, 
even though you made a criminal, just like murder may happen, even though it's criminalized, um, you're providing an outlet, a different outlet, a neutral outlet for the victims to report. So that way the victims aren't committing suicide like Elder Fernandez. The victims aren't, um, are not reporting and keeping this secret and continuing to be victims of sexual harassment like Vanessa Gigan. Like, so what it is, is you're, uh, you're actually uh, more action. We are actually adding more safeguards and, um, and means to report without fear of retaliation and with, with the ability to be best um, reviewed and um, evaluated with a neutral uh, person. Thank you for that uh, clarification. Um, I found a picture of you and the Guillen family meeting with Donald Trump at the Oval Office on July 30th, 2020. Uh, did you feel that he heard you guys and that part of, of you meeting pers uh, in person, as you said, with the, with the senator, uh, uh, gave your, um, your cause more weight or um, it was uh, formality um, and then it was other people that took on your, your cause? No, I think, um, you know, this is my advice. I'm not everyone's attorney. But I always believe it's important to meet someone in person. You know, when you go in, you're, you're an attorney and you're speaking before uh, the court, you're talking to the jury, you're looking them in the eyes. You want to connect with your audience. I always say know your audience. And connecting with your audience is the most, I think, impactful and efficient speaker. What's the point of speaking if you're not effective? You know, you might as well just, you know, sing a song. No one's listening. So when you're meeting with somebody, I don't care what side of the fence they are. I don't care what stature they are. When you're meeting with someone, they know that you care because you're present and you're, they're watching you and you're watching them and you're reading their body language. You're, you're making that determination yourself of whether they heard you or they were just doing la, 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 la while you're speaking. And believe me, I've met with my, my, um, with congressmen and senators and I walked away telling Myra, whatever, that was a waste of time. Like I have said that many times to each other because you know who your audience is and you know who is actually engaging, asking the right questions or just sitting there staring at, you know, uh, mosquitoes. So I want to always tell people, if you have an opportunity to meet with someone, you get on that airplane and you meet with them. That is the most important. And actually it's a compliment. It's a compliment that someone wants to meet with you, that they will take the time out to, to meet with you. With, uh, when President Trump met with us, he opened the Oval Office to us. We had all these reporters in there. Um, and you know what? That spoke to the world. It didn't just speak to Houston or Texas. It spoke to the world. Because now all foreign leaders, everybody saw that it doesn't matter what status you are, if you're the president or if you're just a state senator or someone, when you meet with a person or a family, you open up your home to them, it's an important issue. And that way, let's just say the president of Mexico, or the president of Venezuela or whatever, sees, well, wait, the Donald Trump met with this family, um, Mexican family that, you know, undocumented and everything, because that was an important issue for him and for our country, then there's no reason for any person to ever say, oh, that's not, that family's not rich enough for me, or that family's not famous enough for me, or that family's not documented. There's, when, that was to me a good sign of whether this, this issue was going to be a, whether, you know, I'm very, very, very matter of fact with things, whether this was going to be a democratic issue, a Republican issue, 
a gender issue. And what it did was it opened up the, the gates for it's not going to be a Democratic or Republican issue. It's going to be a bipartisan issue. And it's not going to be, um, a, you know, a gender issue. It's, it's going to be both sides, both genders and both sides of the fence. So that was very important because it allowed for, and I said this to the family, international um, uh, eyes to be looking at this, to make this an international issue and let other countries learn that we're going to change the path in this. We're going to fix this. You also should if you're having this problem. And it was reported that um, the current president, Joe Biden, only signed some parts of the, of the law as a part of an executive order. Is that true? Or did he support uh, everything related to sexual harassment as an offense in the UCMJ? So that's correct. He only signed some parts of it. You know, and I, we're hoping to meet with the president. You know, that was kind of the family was hoping to have been there when he signed the order. Um, you know, it's, we're still hoping to meet with the president. So he also shows, you know, the respect to this family, that he cares about this family. It's something that, you know, uh, when, usually when bills get signed, especially named after someone, they usually have the family or that person there during that signage. So I felt like that was a missed opportunity for this family, uh, an unfortunate missed opportunity. Um, but, you know, they're, they're still looking forward to it if, if it's ever going to happen. Um, and secondly, uh, yes, he only signed uh, the parts of the parts of the bill. Um, and so, you know, like I said, there's more that we want to do, more that we want to see be done. And not to speculate too much, but um, why uh, limited? Is it uh, pressure from the military or some groups to only uh, address some things? So they feel that it is too um, limiting to um, the military's power? Like why only some and not all parts? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know why. I don't want to give anyone any excuses. You know, I, I could say that the DOD probably didn't agree with some stuff and that's why they didn't want to do it. Um, but, you know, I don't want to blame the wrong person either. So, you know, I don't know. It would be something that, you know, I guess um, the president can answer or, or somebody who is the person behind the, the decision making. Um, so going back to uh, what happened to uh, Ms. Guillen, um, I used to work at, at the Veterans Hospital uh, here in Houston, and there was um, a PTSD group, and then there was a sexual trauma group uh, for female veterans. And like you said, there are males who also experience that. And we never talked about the specifics of, of how they weren't able to uh, report, but there was a sense of uh, lack of safety or a, a very um, maybe misogynist or uh, male-oriented environment where they couldn't um, really, um, there was no safety and there was no security for them and, and similar issues with um, people in power ha having uh, opportunities to hurt them. So is, um, is that part of the, the desire of um, the, the activists and the people trying to change um, the military uh, culture or is it 
um, all related in the, the laws because the pushback from uh, conservatives is that the, the military is being turned into um, an, an inclusive, uh, diverse, and um, very um, almost like sensitive to the needs of everyone environment where it needs to be uh, a hard um, war machine that, that um, takes care of, of the, the threats uh, within and without. Like, uh, is there room to, to have a strong military and a safe environment or they don't fit together and that's why there's so much pushback? You know, um, I think there's room for everyone to coexist. Um, I think there's room for everyone to coexist. And I think it, it will start from the way that cases are handled. You know, when a, when a victim reports a crime or violence, um, don't treat that victim like they're um, a liar, like they are um, second-class citizen. I think, you know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And that's what I'm a big believer of. Um, and so when you hear about these victims reporting and how they were mistreated when they reported or not felt believed or um, were blackballed afterwards, you know, that's, I think that's the start. It doesn't matter what the law says. I got to be honest with you at the end of the day. Because the military was supposed to have this law prior to the Gennesegin Act, which was you're supposed to report in chain of command and everything was supposed to be done properly. But they never did. So it's, the law was, I mean, the way that things were done, I'm sure they, the, the intent was good, but the practice was poor. There was, uh, the guidelines weren't being done properly. It was too arbitrary. It was too subjective. Now, nowhere does it say, don't be arbitrary, don't be subjective, subjective. But that was the culture of it. So, uh, you know, it's going back to the culture and the way that, that our military handles or mishandles uh, victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Well, we nipped that in the bud, right? We just took it out of the chain of command. So that way these mistakes and errors don't anymore. Um, but, you know, this new, this new law, the implementation of it, we'll see how that's being done and how, how, um, how uh, victims' cases are being handled um, and treated. You know, because I think treatment, again, sexual harassment and sexual assault is, is emotional. It's not just physical. It's not just sexual. It's also emotional. The person is emotionally scarred with what happened. It's not like a purse you, or, you know, a house. If it catches on fire, you can replace that person in a house. No, you're scarred for life. You can't replace, um, you know, anything. It's, you, you would have to literally remove the, 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 um, the experience or the event, and that's impossible. So... They're, they have issues, mental issues, psychological issues the rest of their life with people they have relationships with, um, people they, you know, the military that at large, uh, how they feel like um, betrayed by their own brothers and sisters in arms. So there's a lot of mental issues, emotional issues that come with uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault. So it's not as easy of a matter. And that's probably why it was so necessary to take it out of chain of command because it's a sensitive issue. And it's one that I think only a person who was a victim of it that can understand and speak of that issue. Um, are the people who now um, victims or survivors report to, 
are they uh, made up of uh, of clinicians and uh, sexual assault um, um, trauma specialists, or is it um, another uh, side of the military where it might be easy to uh, sway them one way or another, depending on politics or um, issues related to keeping the a good face? Um, you know, this reminds me a lot of uh, we did a show on the sexual assault of minors in the Catholic church. And a lot of it was um, PR, like trying to not take down the, the position of, um, of these bishops or the whole institution trying to make them look good. So sweeping things under the rug, what stops uh, this new panel or, or, um, or group of, of specialists from being also uh, swayed to not make the military look bad, especially in cases where it involves people from outside of this country. There was a lot of cases that came out where soldiers were uh, attacking women in Japan or things like that. Like, um, what, what if uh, something like this uh, causes um, a political crisis? Is it gonna be um, possible for um, that to also put pressure on, on the survivors to uh, for their story to get out? You know, that's a great question. And you're, that was actually a deep question. You had me really thinking about this. You know, I don't know. If, when you talk about the um, Catholic Church and the minors and the way that they, quote unquote, fix that system and the corruption that, w that was involved with the, quote unquote, uh, um, investigation and PR that was a part of uh, their survival, it goes to show any large institution, I don't care if it's Catholic church, tobacco industry, the, you know, Islam, um, propaganda, CIA, DOD, you're right. Good very good point. Can we ever prevent corruption from an institution as big as a DOD? Uh, I don't know. It's a great question. Will they put in people that are dirt like almost like they're moles or something in there too? I don't know. I hope not. You know, uh, I don't think any institution is above um, being other than a big institution. Um, and I would hope that there will be um, safeguards, meaning uh, audits and such. I understand that. And I think my only hope is that Congress is uh, always going to be there. So if there's an issue, they can do an investigation of it. But that's not, that's not an easy, uh, you know, order. That's a pretty tall order. You know, I was able to get it done first time around. But, you know, I would think that there would be follow-up or uh, reports that have to be made. Um, and I think it would be necessary for any of the victims that have any issues to report these issues to Congress and such. Because we don't know what's happening unless they tell us. Uh, this is a, a funny and, and sad question. Um, would you ever um, recommend or between you and me tell uh, a survivor to just go straight to the media to to bring a spotlight onto an issue if if you don't hear back from your superiors? And since you've done support for, um, for whistleblowers, um, is that the way to go? The Daniel Ellsberg um, style, like since uh, you talk to the people who are ingrained in the system and, and might not ever be able to be addressed, 
is it uh does it make it worse when people uh look for outside attention to an issue like this you know i, I think that um i think it all matters about the issue right so let's just say um right now somebody is being sexually harassed or sexually assaulted in the military so i'll use your example um and the new system in place isn't responding isn't working completely dismisses or disregards this this case or this issue or fails to investigate i think first thing you do is you contact the armed services committee you know because that's the jurisdiction over it people like to contact their congressman and congresswoman or senator that's fine but at the end of the day it's the the committee that uh applies as jurisdiction over the issue um so for example um the Guillans contacted Sylvia Garcia, right? But I said, all this chanting and all this um, protesting round and round and round is not going to change the law. I get why you're doing that, but the years that Congress, have to, Congress has to do something. They need to change the law. They need to, you know, get the bill passed. Um, so, you know, getting your, your congresswoman, congressman, senator is great, but it really goes to the committee, the committee that can do the investigation. The Armed Services Committee can do an investigation over the DOD. They have jurisdiction. So I always, if it's something that's going to be of a national issue or such, go to the congressman or senator. If that falls on deaf ears, and again, it matters what the status is. For I would first myself call, call an attorney, a federal attorney. You know, an attorney knows where to guide someone. You know, I mean, I... I knew what hurdles we had to do, what we were going to hurdles we were going to have to experience. I knew what path we had to take. I knew who to call, um, where to go. Like, so I kind of feel like I'm very fortunate with having that skill set. It's not a very, uh, not all attorneys have that. Most attorneys don't even practice in federal court, let alone do they know DC and, uh, and legislation in Congress. So, you know, I, I think we are very fortunate for Myra and I to speak. But I think calling an attorney is always the first option. Okay, let's put it that way. Calling an attorney and getting an attorney involved is, to me, really important. At least getting some guidance from one. If not, going and contacting the congressman or senator. After that, if that fails, then why not talk to the media? Why not share your experience? Because I would say, you know, fraud and issues is like cockroaches behind wonders five. You know, there's going to be five other people with these issues or something like that that come out of the woodworks. And that's important because there's a safety numbers. So, uh, you know, it, I, I don't know. It just matters what issue it is. I mean, I'm just speaking generally speaking, but if, if it's another issue, you know, you know, ask me. I'll tell you what I think you should do. But if it's definitely sexual harassment, sexual assault in the military, that's, that would be the strategy I would take. And the reason, you know, I have a lot of problems with um, mainstream media and even uh, independent media because they all have an agenda. And having uh, worked in in um, consumerism media, where everything is about um, commercials and if it bleeds, it leads. I've seen a lot of people be exploited for their their pain. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's not good for the um, the privacy of the person or for the the even emotional um, safety of someone to be, um, you know, put through the ringer uh, with very insensitive questions and things like that. Um, you know, we got to be sensitive to 
someone's trauma, but it, it just is frustrating. And, and I know it's worse in other countries where you see um, violence against women, um, femicides and all kinds of things keep happening and keep happening with impunity. Uh, or in this case, uh, nothing gets done until after it happens. So it uh, is very sad. Um, so I just feel that, um, do you feel that it's important to, um, to speak to the youth also to, to try to um, build bridges of, of love and understanding uh, among males and females, especially, you know, the, the, the victim was young and the perpetrator was young in this case. It, do you think there's also a problem of, of uh, possessiveness and, and a, a culture of, of um, men wanting to, uh, to rule over women or something like that, that, that would cause um, this, for, for people to, to take it to that extreme? Um, do you think it's important to, to teach um, education and, and awareness of, um, you know, unhealthy um, relationships and unhealthy um, obsessions and things like that to, to build a, a, a more, um, you know, kind and compassionate um, next generation? Yeah, I absolutely do. You know, um, your, your question is really good because I've had this conversation uh, and it was part of the Guillen case. It was with, uh, remember, Dr. Ford Kavanaugh, uh, Dr. Ford and versus Kavanaugh and um, the whole um, congressional testimony behind that. What I was, um, when I was watching that, um, uh, the congressional hearing and such, I remember um, being troubled by, when I spoke to my friends about it, who are very liberal, very liberal, so left, living out in uh, Beverly Hills, LA and everything. And, you know, you would think at the time when I was discussing it, they would say, you know, how dare he or whatever. And I remember the wives and everything saying, oh my God, like what happens if they, some girl comes out of the woodworks and says something about my husband. And, uh, you know, this is just based on, uh, him becoming famous or something. And, and so you would see that's quite the opposite of gender, right? Alliance here. Um, and I remember thinking, what? You're the far left liberal that I know who absolutely speaks on women's rights. And now you're concerned that this might actually impact your, I would say, pocketbook, to be honest with you, your marriage or your security at home, because someone can come out out of nowhere as, as they looked at it. Um, and say something about your husband because he's rich and famous now. And so, and by the way, my, my, um, my response, my opinion is nothing to do with my, what our, I feel Kavanaugh is guilty or innocent. It's to answer your question. I remember just thinking the issue of how people's views or reactions are never, um, you can never expect um, to hear what you're about to hear until because of people's sense or people's um, concern of security. Um, if it impacts their security or themselves, they will be biased. Um, and so what I decided was to step back from that whole issue of wondering whether it's guilty or innocent and step back and say, what is the bigger problem here? It's not whether him 
remember she said that he pushed her on the bed and uh, she was, uh, I'm talking about Dr. Ford, she said she was pushed on the bed and I don't think she was raped, but she was scared she was going to be raped and they were laughing. And I remember her saying that they were laughing. And the reason I remember that is because as women, we all had that experience. I hate to say that. We all had experience where men think it's freaking funny when women are scared. And there's nothing more frustrating than men's inability to understand women. And I say this at a level of from being five years old to 500 years old. Men don't understand when women are frightful or feared or, or in fear or they're scared. It's not funny. It's not funny. And let's just say that Kavanaugh wasn't intending to rape her, but she thought he was. He was laughing. The fact that he's laughing was like the insult to injury, the fear of he doesn't think it's serious and he's going to hurt me. Um, so what I was, so I decided to step back to his from whether he was guilty or innocent and say, this is the system. This is a system issue. Forget about because there was no rape, as I understand. She never said he raped her. She said he was about to rape her. This is an issue of, let's fix the system. How do we fix the system? Let's teach boys that it's not funny to make push a girl on the bed. It's not funny when a girl looks like she's in fear. It's maybe we just need to start reteaching. Maybe we need to take the books out that we used all along and either change them or throw them in the garbage and get new books for children growing up and teach boys how when girls are scared to hold them or help them not to think it's funny because that's where I think the part of the problem was is uh, men not identifying or understanding women. Now don't get me wrong. If there's intent to rape, there's intent to rape or rape is rape. But I don't think it went that far because she ran away as she said. But the fact that if it is true that he did push her on the bed and he was laughing, which by the way happens, I hate to say a lot Maybe we just need to start reteaching men from a young age that that's not funny. That is not funny. It's assault. And just because you're laughing doesn't make it less of a crime. So I think just teaching men the mentality of how a victim can be traumatized from the, the thought of your fear or your fright is not important or validated. And how about um, more women in power? Um, I thought that um, one of the reasons that the, the doctor who would uh, abuse um, the gymnast at the, um, it, it was at a college and we did a mm -hmm. show about him as well, was that the, the judge was a female and was able to empathize with the, the survivors. Uh, do you think that that also uh, affects the outcome of many of these cases, even when it gets to the court? Um, I know working, having worked at the Women's Center, I know that very few cases of uh, sexual assault get prosecuted, not only because it's hard for the, the survivors to come forth, is um, there's so many issues along the way that by the time it actually gets to the court, it gets dismissed or there's lack of evidence or there's just an unwillingness to take someone seriously. But if you have um, men who usually feel that something like that, like like your friends, that their their reputation is going to be tarnished, or that they could be the ones in that situation and feel more empathy for the male that is being accused and for the women who were assaulted. That uh, that usually uh, it never um, 
brings about the justice that, that should happen. Do you think that, that more women having uh, positions of power and leadership roles can also help uh, in this case? Look, I'm very pro-woman. Uh, I believe, you know, women being out there, us doing more collectively as an organization, no matter what. But I don't think putting in someone as a woman is going to fix something, and I'll tell you why. I've seen women judges do horrific things because, A, they don't give a damn, or B, they think this is how someone else would rule, meaning a male, so I don't want to look like um, I'm with a minority view or I could be appealed. I, I don't think your gender is going to be a basis for your ruling. I think the problem is more men than none, the higher probability of men ruling uh, without empathy for victims is the issue. And those guys need to be removed from the bench. That's what I think. Instead of just saying, hey, let's plug this, this court with females because females could do the same damn thing. It's if you're not going to look at the facts and look at the victim and take them serious without having some kind of conformatory bias and you should be removed from the bench. And I think all judges that engage in that kind of um, abuse of power should be removed from a bench. I think that there should be some kind of uh, audit on judges that get cases and see the number of cases that, and I'm not talking about DOD only, I'm talking about everything. Like let's just start looking at the numbers and the stats on judges and start deciding which judges should be remaining on the bench or not. Because the worst part is when judges are lifetime judges and they could do whatever the heck they want because no one's looking and no one's, no one's um, evaluating them because they're there no matter what, or they have the, you know, the popular vote because it's a, a highly, you know, rich male area that engages a lot of rape and assault. I don't know. I just think that there needs to be more, um, more um, judiciary, review panels and uh, investigations than there are at this time. And uh, you mentioned that protests um, don't pass laws. Uh, do you ever, uh, or in, in your previous years, uh, engaged in, in protests or in other types of actions? And did you ever see any fruit from that? Or is it... Um, it, it's all legislative, the way that we can change. The, no, well, no, I think a protest is good. I mean, I've engaged in protests. I think a protest is good, but it's not going to, it's not going to resolve the issue. It's just going to be the beginning of bringing awareness. So I always say awareness, the, the way to fix something is to bring awareness. And after you bring awareness, you need to get legislation. So bringing awareness to something helps bring legislation because it puts pressure on Congress to do something. So you need that first step of awareness, you know, media, um, um, you know, getting the, 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 the household, making this a main, mainstream issue, bringing um, awareness to something, educating people. So protests help because people look at what's going on. You know, I'm, I live in D.C. too. I'm always driving by the White House and seeing what's happening, like who's protesting what. Well, we, uh, we just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us. Um, we uh, look up to you and the good work that you do, and, and we're so grateful for supporting uh, the family of Ms. Vanessa Guillen. Um, I think that um, having good people by their side, can it can't take away the pain, but it can make a difference that they feel that um, her, her legacy in her life can, can count for uh, helping others in the process. So thank you again for um, giving us your time and we hope to hear from you in the future. Uh, hopefully 
um, we can uh, fight together to to make a more equitable and more loving world. But um, maybe you can share about some of your other projects uh, in the near future. Thanks, David. I appreciate you. And thank you for bringing awareness to this issue and following it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.